Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am. Good morning. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. It's the 28th of May. Today we have a pretty amazing show, but I do want to acknowledge the radioactive show that just was on before us. They had a great discussion, uh, a post-election debrief, which you can catch online at 3cr.org.au. So for today, we've got, first up, Chris Woods will be doing some news headlines with us. Then we have a pre-recorded interview that Lauren has done for us with Tash Hinan and Anna Sturman of the Climate Justice Collective. So really looking forward to hearing about some of the work that they've been doing. After that, I'll be speaking with Aaron from the Tamil Refugee Council. We'll be talking about uh, the 10 years on since Tamil genocide and the, um, the ongoing issue of Tamil, Tamil refugees being detained. After that, we'll be talking to May from Sol- Solidarity for Palestine. And following that, one of Tuesday Breakfast's favourites, Dr. Jordana Silverstein, um, who will be talking about the difference between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. So, big show up today, really looking forward to speaking with everyone. We might start with uh, a track from one of um, an artist that was recommended to us recently, um, and her name is Coffee, and this track is called Toast. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Apologies, I didn't introduce myself before. <laughs> You're listening to George, and Anya is now in the studio with us as well. Good morning. And we just heard from Coffee, uh, which was a song that was recommended to us by uh, an artist that was recommended to us um, by Candy Bowers on the show mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, and that track was called Toast. Perfect. On the line now, we have Chris Woods. Uh, Chris Woods is um, Crikey's morning reporter and a freelance immigration politics and science journalist. And Chris is here with headlines for us this morning. Hi, Chris. Hi, Gay. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Good, thanks. Thanks for calling Uh, in. Yeah, thank you for having me. Sorry, I haven't been in lately. Um, I mean, it would have been nicer to have you in the studio, but, you know. Absolutely. It would have been nice to be there, (laughs) but, yeah. (laughs) A lot of news. A lot of news about, sadly. Um, 
Yeah, top story uh, I think you're seeing today is that Australia finally has an Indigenous Minister for Indigenous Affairs. It's it's insane that it's taken us this long, but Ken Wyatt has been appointed as um, as Minister for Indigenous Australians, and he's uh, I think he's I. I Fingers crossed, he's he's only going to be better than the last one, but Mm -hmm. he's got, you know, a ton of challenges ahead of him. He's got, um, the big question at the moment is whether the coalition could pass something, uh, uh, could could work on a referendum on on an Indigenous voice to Parliament, which is a key tenant of the Uluru Statement from the Mm -hmm. Heart from 2017. Uh, as well as the Makarata Commission, which is for, would be a process for treaty making. Mm-hmm. It's something that the coalition hasn't really supported, and there's honestly a lot of people saying there's not much chance of it happening this term of parliament, but Labor supports it, Green supports it, uh, and so does Ken White. Ken White supports it, and he, uh, he's, he's delivered some hope that maybe as minister he'll, you know, he'll advocate it. So, and there's obviously a lot of other things, um, uh, that he's under his purview, but that's um, that's kind of created a little bit of hope. He's really the only good outcome of the ministry, which has some truly wild people in it. One um, one really notable and gross exception being Jason Wood, who's mm-hmm. our assistant minister for multicultural affairs, mm-hmm. affairs, and was instrumental in stirring up a lot of the racist hype against um, African Australians during mm-hmm. the Victorian mm-hmm. state election. So he's all these posts of his have gone viral, and he's. Um, yeah, it's very weird that they put him uh, under the multicultural affairs umbrella, but uh, that's that's kind of, you know, he hasn't really dialed back on the quote-unquote African gangs nonsense. Mm. Um, and there's a few, yeah, there's a few other really weird ones in there as well, but mm. I think he's the worst, Ken White's the best. So. <laughs> um, yeah. And also, uh, the next piece, I should issue a content warning for uh, mm. suicide and, and depression, it's... Um, Post-election, there's been a spike in suicides on Manus Island, mm-hmm. and I think Nauru as well, although I can't confirm this Nauru, I think it's harder to get a hold of people there, but uh, for a lot of people uh, detained over there, it was, uh, you know, the coalition victory was the final blow, I think. It's, um, they, uh, yeah, they've, they, you know, there's not much hope for the coalition doing, but I, they haven't responded to it, but... Uh, we do know that there is at least a medivac laws at the moment, so there is some uh, small chance that people might be able to get medical treatment, and that includes psychological treatment um, for mm. the, the people who have self-harmed but, or attempted suicide. Um, but that's still uh, to be decided. And also the coalition has made one of their number one focuses on repealing the medivac laws if they get in, So, mm-hmm. which for them to do that, they will need the support of Jackie Lambie, Tasmania's new senator as she holds the balance of power there mm. and it's kind of a wild card as a you know noted islamophobe but also someone who's maybe you know advocated for bare minimum humanity on occasion so you know we'll see we'll see what happens with that but mm. uh, for the time being, there are, that, that hangs on her <laughs> uh because she uh she has the balance of power in the senate mm. on that issue at least like it'll, it'll kind of vary a bit but uh, everyone else on the, you know, there's Labor, the Greens, and the Centre Alliance, uh, which is like Nick Xenophon's team, and they, they all, all of them support the Medivac legislation. Mm-hmm. And for the government to pass, the government controls the lower house, the, the MPs, but for them to pass something in the Senate, they need support from Bob Catter, uh, Corey Bernardi, who's an imp- independent now, um, but still far right liberal, um, and Pauline Hanson, who is two, and she is two, um, 
One Nation senators. So mm-hmm. they'll presumably get the support from all of them, but they will also need Jackie Lambie, because mm-hmm. presumably no one else would support that law. It'll kind of come down to her. Right, yeah. So um, if anyone supports legislation, please, you know, advocate with Jackie. It's um, she's. I don't think she's said anything on this issue yet, but yeah, she's kind of the only hope a lot of people who want the laws to remain have. Um, mm. Yeah, uh, going forward, sorry, trying to find it's a hard note to move on from. Oh, and Lifeline is, I think, 131114. I might need to double check, but mm. yeah, if anyone's struggling. Um, moving on, Labour has, has appointed their new uh, leader out, Anthony Albanese, following the the loss a week and a half ago. He um, He's generally much better liked in the community than Bill Shorten, but he's also not particularly, like, it's kind of like splitting hairs with a lot of these, you know, centrist, white, straight white men kind of types. He's very similar to Bill Shorten in a lot of stuff. Mm. He's going to make a pitch to Queensland this week. Uh, he's already offered to kind of, like, downplay, to, like, negotiate further to go down on climate action and some other stuff. Like, he's tried to put an olive branch, and the coalition, unsurprisingly, have rejected him on both the Uluru Statement and uh, climate targets, which they are fully uh, happy to keep at, like, nothing, really. Their, their targets are abysmal. And they're going to cheat together as well. They're going to use a bureaucratic carryover system from the 2020 targets to get to 2030 targets. Mm-hmm. It's very complicated, but it's a giant roar. Uh, and, yeah, finally, on, on the topic of climate action, the, the election has also seen a blowout with uh, Queensland. The Queensland state government is very scared, is very worried that um, uh, they're going to lose the power because Labor's taking, in my opinion, the wrong message from the campaign, which is to maybe find green jobs rather than you know, flip-flop on mining, mm-hmm. but they've, mm-hmm. uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk has created a deadline for the Adani, for approvals for the Adani Carmichael coal mine, which she has, um, until now, they've, they've kind of like, it's not really the Queensland government's fault, but like there's all sorts of reasons why, you know, it's, it's been delayed, there's been legal challenges, there's been a million, Adani's going to rip up the groundwater, it's probably going to, you know, endanger and, uh, Further endangered and endangered third, um, mm. but she's, you know, following the election, she's gone, oh, shit, we need to show support for this. Labor's, so basically, Labor's kind of kowtowing to this. Uh, and as part of that, so I think there's like another month before these approvals have to go down um, mm. with one of the departments and some environmental agencies. Uh, but there's also a continuing um, legal challenge as well. And I, I uh, I think it's the, the traditional owners from the region are challenging in their own court at the moment. Um, right. Adrian Beregaba, and I apologize if I, if I pronounced his name wrong, he's the head of the WNJ Council up there. I um, I don't know how the... They're, they're basically appealing uh, an Indigenous land use agreement from mm-hmm. a few years ago, which has a lot of disputed elements around it. So I'm not sure if that will stop the Adani mine going ahead, but if... Uh, if they're successful, it might. Like, it, it depends on the process. Like, it's possible that Dani might already start. They've kind of already cheated yeah. around some of this stuff, so we'll see. Yeah. But that's another avenue. If you have environmental approvals, don't go ahead. There's, or if they do go ahead, um, there's also this uh, legal challenge. Mm. Perfect. Thank you so much yeah. for joining us today, Chris. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Sorry, it's, it's basically all bad news at the moment. But well, you know, know. 
That's news. <laughs> That's news. And there's always hope. There's us, right? There's always hope. That's right. There's always hope. <laughs> what a way to start the morning. Thank you so much for yeah, joining us. Thank you for having me. All the best, guys. In December 2017, Tanya Day, proud Yorta Yorta woman and much-loved member of the Aboriginal community, was travelling by train to Melbourne. When V-Line staff found her asleep, they called Castlemaine Police and she was removed from the train and charged with public drunkenness. Tanya died 17 days later as a result of head injuries sustained while in custody. This would never have happened had the recommendations of the 2001 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody been implemented. Tanya Day's family is calling for the crime of public drunkenness to be abolished and for the implementation of genuine community health alternatives to incarceration. Please add your support by signing the petition at 3CR Reception, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or online by entering Tanya Day Petition into your browser. This is our country. We've never forgotten where we've come from. Or who we are. We keep our culture strong. Now it's time to come together. Talk as equals. And write our own future. This is our country and this is our time. Treaty is time. Enroll now for the First People's Assembly of Victoria election. Authorised by the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, Melbourne. The 3CR Radiothon is fast approaching. And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio. That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon 2019... June the 3rd to the 16th. Power Radical Radio. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. I hope everyone was listening to that ad that we just played about the Radiothon that's coming up. (laughs) So the 3CR Radiothon is from the 3rd to the 16th of June 2019, so that's coming up really, really soon. What is the Radiothon? <laughs> the Radiothon is to raise funds to power Radical Radio, which um, which is, you know, 3CR in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, everything that we do is for the people. Um, it's a volunteer-based organization, so really any... Any funds that you donate is to keep the lights on in the studio and to keep the mics working um, and for us to continue doing what we love and and give you the content that you really like as well. Mm. And so, yeah, Anya mentioned the theme Power Radical Radio, which is cool, and the idea that the that the fundraising will go towards keeping the station going, which I think is a nice, That's right. nice sentiment. So we'll have a special Radiothon show in about two weeks. Yes. 
um, where you know we encourage you to call in and talk to us and you know pledge some money on air if you'd like or just offer some words of encouragement and solidarity if you'd like. <laughs> some criticisms. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe keep the criticisms on the DL and, and text it to us or something. True, true. Uh, and don't call in and yell at us, please. <laughs> but if you feel so inclined, if our show evokes that sort of emotions in you, then, you know, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that, yeah, we've been talking about having some guests on mm. probably Tuesday Breakfast Favourites to come and talk about what the work that they're doing and kind of thinking about things in terms of, you know, it's been a year now since the last Radiothon, how mm. have campaigns developed, how have these movements progressed, mm. and kind of, I guess, thinking about 3CR's role within that. And I think Anya already touched on, you know, the importance of community radio, and I think we'll be talking more about that and the concentration of media ownership mm. and, and why it is so important to listen to stations like 3CR, particularly at at, at this, this time that we're in. Mm. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. It's one of those shows today, I think. <laughs> but we're getting through and we have some exciting people on the line with us. Well, for starters, we have Aaron Muvaganam, who is from the Tamil Refugee Council. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Aaron. Uh, thank you for having me, George. So, Aaron, you're here to talk to us about, I guess, lots of things that are going on at the moment, but I want to start by asking you about the... There, there's recently been some events organised around uh, 10 years since um, a specific period of Tamil genocide in Sri Lanka, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yes, uh, Sri Lanka has gone through a civil war for many, uh, many decades. Uh, it started uh, in the... Uh, you know, since British left uh, the island, uh, and uh, it came into an armed struggle uh, in the in the late 70s and, and 80s, and in 2009 it came to a climax uh, where the the Sri Lankan uh, government decided to wipe out Tamil resistance uh, militarily, uh, and uh, and as a result of it, uh, they committed a genocide killing uh or they they're accused of killing over a uh, hundred thousand uh, people uh, according to tamil sources over 146,000 tamils uh remain unaccounted for uh thousands of tamils were loaded onto trucks and and they have never uh, been found uh, since uh, being taken by the the sri lankan army and uh and so on Eighteenth of May is the the final day of the killings, and, and Tamils uh, came together uh, to remember uh, the the tenth anniversary uh, of, the, of the of the killings, and, and it's, it's an event that happened in every part of the world. 
um, uh, including in the Tamil homeland as well, despite uh, emergency uh, laws uh, in place. Uh, after the Easter bomb attacks, uh, Tamils still came together uh, to, 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 to remember and also uh, to send a message uh, to the world that they're still standing and, and, and still fighting. Mm, it seems so important to hold those events and you know, I think a lot of these, um, I guess this ongoing violence that Tamil people have experienced in Sri Lanka doesn't seem to really be acknowledged uh, by the global community and in Australia especially. The 2009 killings, uh, it's it's something that was uh, supported by many Western governments. Permanent People's Tribunal, a body uh, that investigated uh, the killings uh, in 2009, had hearings in, in Dublin and Bremen. I think the last hearing was in 2013. And they found U.S. and U.K. were complicit uh, in mm. the genocide. And, uh, and, and, and they found India to, to likely to have... Uh, uh, contributed to uh, the genocide, mm-hmm. and Australia is is part of that ally. Australia supported uh, the the Sri Lankan um, government. They actually in 2006 arrested three Tamil men uh, on terrorism-related uh, charges. Uh, they were found not guilty of the the original charges uh, in 2009. But what happened was. From 2006 to 2009, they managed to silence the Tamil community here while Sri Lankan government murdered our people. And um, and so, you know, when the killings happened, we had very little attention uh, in Australian media. In fact, uh, only the Greens were, ta- you know, Greens politicians were taking part in our rallies. Labour politicians and Liberals didn't want anything to do with the, the Tamil community. And... Um, you know, though the killings, despite there being video uh, footages of uh, you know how the, the Sri Lankan government was um, uh, murdering Tamils, uh, we were we were called as liars, and um, and uh, you know uh, they didn't want to uh, uh, listen to us, and, and they gave no airtime at all uh, for, for the killings, um, and it's now been ten years. Uh, in the last 10 years, Tamils have faced all sorts of uh, all sorts of uh, uh, violence at the hands of the, uh, the the Sri Lankan military that continues to occupy uh, the Tamil homeland. Mm-hmm. For every six Tamils, uh, there was an army member present in the north and east of the island, uh, in the in the area where there were the final killings took place. Uh, for every two Tamil, there is an army member present, and it's a, it's a heavy military presence. And, and, and you know, they're also involved in civilian activities as well. Um, and uh, you know, even even running primary schools. Uh, so it's um, you know, it's, it's really problematic uh, for Tamils. But you know, when it comes to any attention on the issue, uh, mainstream media still takes sides with the, the Sri Lankan government, despite how they have manipulated the, the international community uh, in 2009 and thereafter. Mm, and I think that, yeah, I think you mentioned that stat about the one soldier for every you know, six civilians at uh, the rally on Friday. 
and that's such a I think you know it's hard to imagine what that would be like to live under those conditions it's so militarized the the military presence in the Tamil homeland now is much heavier than the military presence that Iraq had in its uh, you know at, at its peak uh, d- during the mm. war yeah that's just that's huge and how how is this impacting the lives of Tamil people in Sri Lanka Obviously, with the uh, with the military presence, uh, there there are a lot of um, uh, issues that comes with it. Uh, first is harassment. Every day, Tamils are being uh, harassed uh, at the hands of uh, Sri Lankan military. There's uh, you know a lot of uh, sexual harassment. Uh, the the land uh, Tamils are not able to. There are so many thousands of Tamils. Uh, are not able to go back to their villages because military still has uh, bases um, uh, on their land. Um, uh, you know, in terms of livelihood, uh, in some areas uh, it is reported that uh, Sinhalese uh, people from the south are brought in uh, to fish in uh, Tamil areas and Tamil fishermen are denied entry uh, to, to their areas. Um, uh, there's also building of Buddhist uh, statues, um, and, and they're able to, you know, the the the, the Sinhalese uh, settlers, what they, uh, the Sinhalese extreme uh, monks, what they do is they they come and and they build a brand new statue, and uh, and they claim that you know there was a uh, there was a um, you know this is a historical single site because you know we have a we have found a Buddhist uh, mm. shrine here, and um, uh, you know the 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 changing of demography uh, is happening at a uh, at a fast pace, uh, and um, and we we're really concerned that. Uh, Tamil Ulam, uh, the the Tamil homeland is uh, is, is disappearing um, with the military occupation. Mm. And I think is there also an issue of land ownership in Tamil regions as well? Uh, in in what way is that? So is that are there any issues around land being taken from Tamil people in the northern regions of Sri Lanka? That's right. Uh, the, the the land grabbing is a is, is another issue as well. Uh, Sri Lankan uh, government uses um, all sorts of excuses to uh, take over uh, the the land from uh, Tamil people. So that hasn't stopped either. Mm. And so I guess this takes us to the questions around Tamil refugees in Australia. And, you know, we've seen a lot of deportations of Tamil, uh, legitimate Tamil refugees. What kind of organising is being done at the moment with the Tamil Refugee Council? Tamil uh, refugees have been targeted by successive Australian governments, Labour and uh, and Liberal. Uh, When, you know, Tamils fled the genocide and came to this country, the first thing that the Australian government did was demonise the the Tamil asylum seekers, uh, and it was done to appease the the Sri Lankan government, um, who was um, being chased by various uh, uh, bodies internationally for war crimes and and, and crimes against uh, uh, humanity. And they found a lot of support uh, uh, in, in Australia. Uh, so when Tamils first came, 
They were given negative uh, security uh, assessments. Uh, over 50 Tamils were given negative security assessments for their involvement uh, or alleged involvement in the uh, in, in the with the Tigers. Uh, and then uh, under the Gilad government, uh, Gilad government specifically introduced enhanced screening process for Tamil asylum seekers, under which over 1,500 Tamils were deported back to Sri Lanka uh, uh, without their claim uh, being assessed. And, uh, uh, you know, that continued uh, under the, the coalition government uh, with increased support uh, for the, 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 the Sri Lankan government where, you know, we had Tony Abbott not only justifying torture when he visited Sri Lanka, uh, he even donated uh, two Navy ships um, uh, to patrol any Tamils who are fleeing Sri Lanka and, um, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the last couple of years, uh, international, um, sorry, the, the independent uh, as immigration assessment authority uh, has rejected over 1,500 Tamils uh, uh, for protection uh, claims, uh, and I believe, uh, based on the uh, the figures uh, we have received, nine out of uh, ten Tamils are uh, being uh, denied protection visas. Uh, by the, the, the current uh, uh, government, and it is based on a report prepared by Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, which basically claims that uh, since 2015, when the, the previous uh, leader who is accused of uh, mass crimes uh, was defeated uh, by the, the new leader, they, um, the, the, the country is safe for Tamils to go back, and um, and on that basis, uh, they're denying uh, uh, protection visas. Uh, Tamils are the worst when it comes to uh, you know refugees. Uh, they have the the much higher um, uh, rejection rate. And um, now you know we're seeing Tamils being deported back every fortnight, uh, uh, loaded onto planes and, mm. and, and 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 being sent back to the the, the Sri Lankan uh, uh, army. Mm. Um, and you know there are so many families, so many individuals uh, at risk. You know in, you know face danger uh, when they get deported back to Sri Lanka. Yeah, and Aaron, I'm aware that we're running out of time, and I'm sorry, I have so many questions for you today. I want to end by talking about Priya, Nadez, and their children, and what is being done currently to, I guess, fight for them to stay in Australia, and what can our listeners do in terms of supporting these, um, these fights to prevent people from being deported back to unsafe uh, places? <laughs> Yeah, Piria, uh, Piria and their two children are facing deportation back to Sri Lanka. They have lost all the, the, the legal challenges. Uh, they could be deported back any moment. There's nothing stopping the government uh, from deporting this family other than public pressure. Uh, there's a campaign led by people of uh, Bilovila, uh to to stop the stop their deportation. Um, you can get onto the the campaign page. It's bring Nades and their two children to to Bilovila. That's the the, the campaign page. Uh, it's on Facebook. 
Um, there's a website as well, hometobulo.com, uh, I believe, or if you type home to Bulo, uh, it'll, it'll come. Um, and there are a number of uh, actions that uh, you could uh, take part in. Um, you could also be part of the, uh, the, the emergency list that we're trying to prepare um, in the event of uh, you know, any attempt to uh, deport the family we will be having uh, emergency actions, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you can take part in that as well. At the moment, all we want people to do is uh, contact the, the immigration minister, and uh, and that's David Coleman. Uh, tell him how much you care about this family, and uh, and, and that you want this family to be sent to Villa uh, Villa and not be deported back to danger. Mm. Thanks, Owen. And I guess, as you pointed out in our conversation today, there's clearly a lot of denial from the Australian community and we can see Australia being complicit in ongoing violence in Sri Lanka. So it's so important for us to be having these conversations and be aware of what kinds of activism is is going on at the moment around this. So thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me on air, George. Have a nice day. Bye. Thank you. That was Aran from the Tamil Refugee Council talking about 10 years on since Tamil genocide in Sri Lanka and ongoing issues in terms of uh, fears of deportation uh, with Tamil refugees. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio with myself, Anya and George. Hello. George, that was a great interview. Thanks, Anya. Also so important, um, especially about Nades and, and yeah. his family. Yeah. Um, uh, like what Aaron was saying, all the legal avenues have been exhausted, yes. but the minister still has the discretion to stop yes. the deport- deportation if he wants. Yeah. Um, I also saw, sorry mm. to cut you off, no, no, I also saw that they've filed a, uh, a child protection complaint, mm-hmm. yeah. um, uh, which, I mean, you might understand the legal... Um, I guess things around this, but but is that so that specific to their case? Is that, is that how it works? From what I understand, it's because the, the children in detention are receiving, um, really bad care. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the girl, she has, um, has some teeth issues yes. because of malnutrition, which, oh, is absolutely horrible if you yeah. think about it. Um, also child protection, you know, is, is a bit of a fraught topic with, with what's going on in the country. Yeah. But it seems to be a last ditch effort. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it is true that the children are being mistreated and the government is their legal guardian at the moment. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see if that works, but also what that 
means in terms of wider implications for other children. Yeah. Um, and also other people in detention. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. What I'm really interested in um, is the fact that obviously this particular family has been so big in the media because mm-hmm. of the activism and I guess the support of white Australians and mm-hmm. everything. But obviously so many, you know, Aaron mentioned that we have uh, Tamil refugees being deported every fortnight. Yeah. How can we get... Uh, more involved in, you know, I think that they organise around when they, the date of someone's deportation. Mm. But, you know, from my perspective, that's too little too late. Mm. How can we organise this kind of uh, activism mm. around every every person that we know is in danger of being deported? Mm. Especially, um, you know, that what Chris was saying in the morning as well about the high rates of self-harm that's yeah. been happening in Manus. And, yep. um, yeah, lots to, lots to think about. Yes. Yeah. Um, and next, we thought maybe we'll do a little little discussion about the recent horrific murder of Courtney. So I guess just as a heads up to listeners, we're going to be talking about um, the um, about the murder of Courtney Heron. So it might be a little heavy. Um, if so, please switch off your radio for the next five to ten minutes. But come back, please. <laughs> um, so and also we'll we'll give you some numbers for Lifeline and, and support services at the end of it. So Courtney Heron, she um, she was the twentieth woman to be murdered this year in Australia, according to the Counting Dead Women Organisation, uh, which is basically the tally that's the same as last year, which shows that nothing has been done to shift the needle. Um, the accused, um, I think this is the latest report that came in that said that the accused uh, was is also a, a homeless person like Courtney and has been diagnosed with ADHD and potentially been diagnosed with delusion disorder and autism. So it's brought up a lot of discussions around, you know, homelessness and substance abuse and mental health issues and how, um, you know, we need structures and services that address this issue or this multiplicity mm. of issues to keep our people safe. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so we thought we'd talk a little bit about yeah. that. Could I, could I read uh, Wire's statement? Of course. It's, yeah. um, it's about two short paragraphs. So Wire is uh, the um, Women's Information and Referral Exchange Service uh, that supports any woman or non-binary person facing any issue. Mm. Um, and I think they made a great statement about this. Um, which kind of, I guess, expands on what you've already mentioned, Anya. Mm. So they say, they say that in our society, we still have concepts of deserving and undeserving. Mm. Marginalised women are relegated to the fringes of our society. Their voices are silenced and their needs are ignored. In these vulnerable circumstances, marginalised women face significantly greater risks of violence and abuse and are more likely to be blamed for the violence they experience. It, yeah. Whoever killed Courtney is the individual to blame for her death. But as a community, we need to reflect on what went wrong. How have we enabled 25 women so far this year to be killed by men's violence? Courtney's life was just as meaningful and precious as anyone else's. She deserved to have a safe place to live, adequate access to mental support, mental health support, a community who supported her, and a violence-free life. We need to prioritise safety for all women, including those who experience poverty, addiction, and mental health issues. And why is calling for increased spending on public housing, mm. mental health services, and the prevention of violence against women? And they're also calling for uh, uh, an inquiry that examines the systemic and cultural failures that led to the circumstances of Courtney's murder. Mm, absolutely, it's a bigger structural issue than 
you know, of course what happened was horrible, but um, it's also important to keep in mind that homeless people often face the highest rates of violence and sexual assault, and that's something that needs to be addressed. Um, also, some of the, I guess, quotes from the homeless person, the Council of Homeless Persons Chief Executive Jenny Smith, um, about how there are far too few housing options that women on low incomes can afford, and that crisis accommodation and refuges are full of people who can't move on to permanent housing because the affordable options just aren't there. So there's a bit of a bottleneck mm. of people who can't move on because of the lack of options, mm. and the people who can't even get in. Because also of the lack of options. Yeah. Um, and also, um, I think she also said something about how there often wasn't a safe option for homeless women, which left them with unsafe housing options like rooming houses, where they were vulnerable to physical and sexual assault. This is something we touched on maybe a couple of months ago um, about, you know, the, the sort of sexual violence that homeless um, women face when they enter rooming houses. Mm. So, big discussion. It's good that the police have come out and actually said something to the effect of, you know, men needing to take responsibility for this sort of violence against women. Mm. Although a lot of media outlets have already caught on to that and, you know, did the hashtag not all men already. But <laughs> I think that, you know, the, the conversation's going the right way this time yeah, around. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And I guess really putting it back on the structural factors and the fact that a lot of these issues can be addressed if there is the will to do that. You know, yeah. ho- homelessness is an issue that can be basically solved mm. if the, if there is a desire to create affordable accommodation for people. So Absolutely. Yeah, so they don't have to um, sleep rough. I mean, that's just such a yeah. obvious solution. Yeah. And also important to keep in mind that a lot of this homelessness situations arise because of violence already. A lot of women end up on the streets because of mm. family violence. A lot of family violence and domestic violence happens by people they already know. So, you know, larger conversations about violence against women, um, but also structural issues. Yes. Like yeah. housing options and, and all of that as well. Yeah. Um, so maybe we'll we'll try to bring someone on air to discuss this to in more detail. To continue the conversation. And we can. Yes. Also, there is a vigil this Friday night, mm-hmm. I think, for Courtney. Mm-hmm. Um, so get down to that if you want to yeah. connect with people and, and show support and solidarity. Mm. If listeners have any thoughts or you know, anything that you want to talk to us about or mention, just feel free to reach out to us on, on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and we can have a discussion. And also, if anything from this discussion has caused any distress, you can call Why Women's Information. Their number is 1300 134 130. Uh, and you can also call Lifeline on 131114. <laughs> You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, and we were just listening to a song by Johnny Huckle called Curry Love. I want to also mention we were talking about the vigil for Courtney Heron. That is this Friday at 5.30pm at Royal Park. Thanks, George. So you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Thank you for joining us, as always, every Tuesday morning. Hopefully we're not talking into the (laughs) the void. (laughs) Um, I'm very excited 
because we have a guest in the studio. <laughs> we have Dr. Jordana Silverstein. Hi, Geordie. Hi, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. And uh, you're a Tuesday breakfast favourite, so... Uh, I love coming on this show. (laughs) Um, So we were going to talk about the protest that happened on Saturday that was organised by um, a group called Solidarity for Palestine, NAM Melbourne. Um, And the protest was to, I guess, commemorate uh, the 71st anniversary of the the Nakba, which um, means catastrophe mm-hmm. um, about the you know the massive displacement of uh, Palestinian people that happened 71 years ago and the ongoing struggle um, and we were hoping to get someone from the group to come in and talk to us about it today but it, you know it, it just didn't happen so we apologize for that and maybe we can bring them on next week um, but Jordi's got coming in here to talk to us about well about the protest but also wider discussion about the solidarity movements around it and why it's important for Jewish people to get involved as well. Yep. Um, so, Jody, maybe we can begin by just um, talking about why you were there at the protest. Why is that important to you? Sure. I guess um, for me it's, of course, I would be there. And I think um, that's a, yeah, that's not something that I would have said my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, you know, it's so important um, for Jews, um, for people to recognise that um, what in the kind of Zionist narrative is was named, you know, War of Independence, and, and is seen as a moment um, of um, independence and self determination was a catastrophe, was a Nakba, mm. and is an ongoing Nakba. And so many of the speakers on Saturday talked about that. That mm-hmm. we're in the seventy first year of Nakba. It's not that it happened seventy one years ago. Um, so I think it's really important that that we recognize that and recognize that in a deep way and not that's, that is to say not that we just say that that it is and, and and go on with our day but that we think about what that means that this is still you know it's palestinian land that there are if you walk around um israel you, you see destroyed villages you see remnants um if you talk to people who grew up there They'll say that they used to go to the ruins of villages and that's where they would play as kids, mm. but didn't know that these were the ruins of Palestinian villages. Mm-hmm. So that just wasn't talked about. So I think that's the big thing is is that um, particularly in Jewish communities, but I think also in non-Palestinian communities mm-hmm. generally, we don't talk about enough talk enough about the Nakba mm-hmm. and we don't understand enough about what happened and what continues to happen. Mm. So I think it's important to be there. Um, on on Saturday and, and to be these kinds of things because um, we need to be making public statements that this is important to remember and know um, and to mark and to fight against and to work to undoing, to not accept that this is the natural, normal state of affairs. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it was a good reminder. I know a lot of speakers talked about, I guess, the um, the similarities but also the importance of of understanding that we are also on land that was never ceded mm. on stolen land. We're also talking about displacement that happened many, many years ago, haven't really grappled with it and how those sorts of solidarity movements had to yep. work together. Yeah. And absolutely. not forget each other. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's really powerful um between different settler colonies. It's really um mm-hmm. uh powerful movements of solidarity and you know, like um during Ferguson protests in the US mm-hmm. a few years back, uh, Palestinians were tweeting like, this is what you do with um, tear gas, 
you know, this is mm-hmm. you know how you respond to these kinds of aggressions, which they know because the Israeli army trains police forces around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of a big ex- military, I mean, military training and hardware is a massive Israeli export, mm-hmm. um, and which is another reason why we're all in, have something at stake in it is because it's going, it's being shipped around the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And let's talk about the differences between anti-Semitism mm. and anti-Zionism, especially given the recent backlash against um, Ilhan Omar in the US. Was that backlash against Ilhan Omar warranted firstly? But also, yeah, this seems to be coming up a lot anytime someone sort of criticizes Israel, it's immediately construed as anti-Semitism. What are mm. your thoughts around this? Yeah, it's really... Um I've been thinking a lot recently about anti-Semitism, part because um, I was recently made more aware of how little people know about anti-Semitism mm. and how little people understand about historical anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. but how much, you know, I went, I went to a Jewish high school and, and went to like Sunday school throughout my youth and we learned about anti-Semitism throughout the ages. We learned about all the Christians, about Christian anti-Semitism and European mm-hmm. anti-Semitism and, and I think we're relatively well-versed in, in understanding how it happened historically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. Is there at times anti-Semitism amongst anti-Zionists? Absolutely, mm-hmm. um, of course. Um, and I'm not here to say that you know the left is immune from anti-Semitism, but also that we're not, you know, the most serious anti-Semitism is not coming from the left and it's not coming from anti-Zionists. Mm-hmm. And that's very clear that the actual threat to Jewish life is coming from the right and yep. particularly from the far right and the rise of fascism and Nazism. And we saw that on the beaches in St Kilda. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing that in the US where... But yeah, we're definitely seeing it in many ways throughout Australia. And there was actually... I don't know if people saw this, but um, there was an article in The Age the other day that on the Sunday footy show, and I assume no listeners actually watch the Sunday footy <laughs> show, and I definitely do not. Um, but uh, former Richmond player Mal Brown um, was on the f- Sunday footy show and talking about a former teammate, Kevin Bartlett, he said he was very Jewish, he never bought a drink in his life. Mm. Um, so the anti-Semitism there is the idea that, you know, Jews um, are cheap, that Jews are good with money, mm. um, that, yeah, that, that's basically the, the, the stereotype. And, and what it actually comes from is, that, you know, this historical moment when Christians weren't allowed to, mm. in, in Europe, when, when uh, Christians weren't allowed to be loaning money, and so Jews had to take on those roles of, of you know, finance and hence developed, you know, mm-hmm. the history of mm-hmm. working in finance. Mm. And so then we have these, these stereotypes that Jews are cheap and, and Jews are good with money that play out on our, you know, Sunday TV um, and, that, and that are broadcasted. So I think, you know, that's anti-Semitism and that's really dangerous and it's pernicious and it's every day and... I imagine that um, lots of people are really familiar with the jokes around, you know, Jews being good with money. Mm. Um, and it does have, you know, I think we do need to take these kinds of things seriously because they do then play out into a normalisation of anti-Semitism. Mm. But going back to the anti-Zionism thing, I think, you know, Israel is a colonial state. Israel mm. is actively um, working every day to dispossess Palestinians. Um, what goes on in the territories, the occupied territories, what goes on in Gaza. Gaza is under siege and has been, mm-hmm. you know, for so long. And, you know, the the occupation of the West Bank is, yeah. you know, such a long military occupation. It controls absolutely every aspect of everyday life. Yeah. It's, you know, 
right, you know, down to the minute, controlling people's lives. It's people dying at checkpoints. It's soldiers setting fields on fire. It's so many things, and and I think absolutely that the, the um, conservative attacks on Ilhan Omar, um, mm-hmm. they're outlandish. There, it's. Um, a deliberate distraction as well from right-wing anti-Semitism. Mm. It's very calculated. It's clever. They know what they're doing. Mm. Um, and we need to be able to call that out mm-hmm. and say that um, we can critique Israel um, in the same way that, you know, I and many people are probably anti-nationalists in general. I have a problem with all nationalisms. Um, and I work on the two that are, are most affected by in, in Australia and Israel. But, yeah, we... we can critique Zionism. We can be not Zionist or anti-Zionist. Uh, we can critique what Israel does, and we have to. Yeah. Um, and it's not anti-Semitic to do so. Yeah. 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 For listeners tuning in, this is 3CR Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Anya, and George, and we're just talking to Dr. Jordana Silverstein about the protest on Saturday, um, about the... Um, Napka, and we just talked about the difference between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Jordi, can you now talk to me about the importance of Jewish solidarity movements around this issue? Yeah. So I think um, there's big and growing um, strength in these Jewish solidarity movements. Um, I think the first thing, the important thing to note is that they're... um, they should be secondary to what Palestinians do. And I mm-hmm. think it's really important always to highlight um, both that Palestinians face uh, much more repression uh, in everyday life, um, that Palestinians, if, if they speak up and protest, they have much more at stake, mm-hmm. obviously, than, than Jewish solidarity movements do. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, I think that there's, you know, groups will go over and do activist work um, mm. in the occupied territories, and, and I think that work is really important. And I think there's also, um, you can see on Twitter, really great critiques of these kinds of things and the ways that we have freedom of movement in ways that Palestinians who live in, really, in Gaza and the West Bank in particular, but particularly Gaza, mm. just don't have the same freedom of movement. Um, and I think we always need to have that at the forefront of our thinking is... Um, what is following Palestinian ideas um, and and demands and, and their leadership mm-hmm. um, and also recognising the privileges that we have. And, and I mean, privileges is not a great word. I'm not such a fan of it. But the kinds of different ways in which we're in the world, yeah. I guess, um, and the access that we differently have. Um, with that said, mm-hmm. I think, um, and I don't mean to brush that to the side, that's central to my thinking mm-hmm. um, and activist work, but there's... There are, I think, um, people are working solidarity in ways now that they weren't working five years, ten years, Mm. twenty years ago. Um, I think it's both because things are getting worse and worse Mm. um, and also just, you know, spread of social media means that we have more access to know what's going on um, and more people are becoming aware of what's actually happening. Mm. So, yeah, I was there um, on Saturday as part of a group with, uh, as part of Jews Against Fascism. Um, we had our banner there, and, and I think it's really important mm. to us as a group. Um, I don't, don't speak for everyone in the group. It's a, you know, it's a really mm. broad group. Mm-hmm. But for many of us, I think um, 
solidarity as Jews with Palestinians is mm. really important and really central um, to our activism. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, for many of us, I, I used to be a Zionist. I attended yeah. a Zionist school. It never occurred to me to be anything else until I got to university and started learning about Australian colonialism and then sort of put two and two together and mm. read more and, and understood more about what was happening in Palestine and, mm. and thought about it more deeply. So I guess I it's I it's important to me to to do Palestine solidarity work and be in solidarity with Palestinians in part because I have been a Zionist and, mm. and I feel like it's important to make good mm. uh, on what I have been in the past. Um as part of a process of um, rethinking that mm. and, and understanding how normative Zionist ideas are. Mm. Um, but I think also because we have particular power and, and we can speak up and say actually Zionism isn't an expression of Jewish self-determination mm. that we uh, want a part of, that yeah. there are other ways that Jews can be self-determined. Mm. Um, and for me, you know, that's about sort of Jewish self-determination in Melbourne or Australia. Anyway, sorry, it's a very ra- long rambling answer. No, no, but, no. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think um, everybody comes to it with a different reason and, and I think it's also important as Jews to critique other Jewish self, Jewish mm. uh, solidarity movements and, and I'm definitely, you know, have those internal critiques. But um, I think, yeah, it's, it's important to do that work um, as Jews because Israel claims to speak for us as Jews, and we have to be very clear that it does not speak for us. Mm. I think that's, I mean, thank you for sharing the, you know, your personal journey into, Mm. from being a Zionist too. And I think that's really important to understand as well that, you know, people can change Mm. if they start, I guess once you learn something, it's really difficult to unlearn it. Um, And that was also a main theme around that protest on Saturday where they kept saying, you know, talk to your friends and talk to Mm -hmm. people who don't know about this issue because it's happening right now. And, you know, so, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no worries. Um, And, Jordi, I also want to talk about the the growing BDS movement, Mm -hmm. the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement. Mm -hmm. Can you please explain what that is firstly and about the effectiveness or if it's not that effective, what people can do to step it up? Yeah, I think probably people in Australia most recently have uh, are most in the biggest way had contact with it over Eurovision recently. Mm. Um, Eurovision was in Israel, people might have seen that and there were calls for boycott around it Mm -hmm. and I hope most listeners did boycott and didn't watch it. Mm. I know I didn't watch it. Um, So BDS, Boycott Divestment Sanction, it's a call from Palestinians um, and it's got support from Palestinian civil society um, right across the board. So I'd encourage listeners to go. um, If you Google BDS, you'll you'll find lots of information and there's a Palestinian Coordinating Committee, PACB, um, which, you know, will, will give you heaps of information about what it is. But in short, it basically means do what you can to not buy Israeli products, mm-hmm. do what you can to not visit Israel, um, do what you can to not participate in the economy of Israel. And I say do what you can because I think often there's like a gotcha culture of like, oh, the chip in your phone is was made in Israel or mm-hmm. was made using Israeli technology and... We absolutely, we're in a global, you know, economy. We absolutely can't disentangle ourselves from everything. But we can think strategically about it. So 
that soda stream you have, that's Israeli made. And I think that's a really big one that people don't know about. And it used to be made in a factory in the West Bank. Um, and after a lot of pressure, it was, the factory was moved, but it's still being made in Israel. Mm-hmm. So re, you know, there are environmental reasons why I'm guessing many listeners might have a soda stream, but think about also the economy of it, um, mm-hmm. and where it comes from and who you're giving money to and who you're supporting. But I think oftentimes that the importance of BDS is political and it's about putting pressure on. It's about saying that change can't come from within Israel, that the Israeli society is Most Israeli society just doesn't care. It's Mm -hmm. normal. The occupation is normal. They're not working hard to end it. So pressure has to come from outside. So Mm -hmm. the model is, is of course, South Africa and the boycotts over South Mm -hmm. Africa. Um, And right when when Bob Hawke died the other week, we celebrated his role in in the Springboks tour and, and and, you know, supporting as a trade union um, movement leader and supporting the boycott. You know, we're we're all very familiar with that as, as a good model and as something... That was good. And BDS should be thought of and one day will be thought of as exactly the same sort of good. Um, So with Eurovision, yeah, the idea was it shouldn't... It's part of um, what's called culture washing. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also pink washing. Mm. So Israel gets to present itself as just a normal democratic country that that has this big cultural event and everybody goes and has a party and celebrates Mm. and you go to the beach in Tel Aviv and... You have fun and, and you just listen to music and, you know, some people, including Australia's entrance, you know, said, I'm going to play, you know, my music's for everybody. Mm. But of course it's not because the Gazans can't go and mm. West, you know, they absolutely can't go because it's a blockade. People from the West Bank can't get a permit to go. Mm. Like these things aren't for everybody. So we can't, the idea is that we can't allow Israel to present itself as just a normal democratic, you know, country. Mm. Um, that we have to be, at every possible moment, pointing out that it's a military occupation, that it's mm. not democratic, that, you know, there's all these kinds of violence really embedded in society. Mm. So BDS is, I think, about making that claim, making it public, making it spread around the world as much as possible, mm. and having people realise that they can be part of it, that you can do things, mm. that you can feel empowered to be part of creating that change. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I think I, you know, I was having this discussion with someone from another country, similar situation, and she was talking about how this sort of movement has grown through WhatsApp. You know, people just, Mm. you know, spread information about where certain products are made and just not buying those products made a huge difference to the manufacturer and made them rethink the way they, you know, use and market products and all of that. Yeah. Um, so that was, yeah, that's, that's really Mm. cool. Yeah. Yeah. It just sounds like we just need to, be more mindful of where we're putting our money yeah, and what we I support. Yeah, I think so. In. And I think we're just in general, you know, it's good to be mindful of these mm. things, right? We should know um, what we're coming to and what we're supporting. And I think it's hard because, you know, there's so much going on in the world and it's definitely, you yeah. know, we, we have limits to our time and, and our knowledge and 100%. Um, mm. It's hard to have an in-depth knowledge about everything. Yeah. But I think... You know, being aware of it and um, I think particularly because BDS is so accepted amongst Palestinians mm. that, um, you know, we, we as part of a group, another group I'm part of, Australian Jewish Democratic Society, we did a forum on BDS. Mm. Um, la- no, started this year. Sorry. And, and the recording of that's online. Um, people can listen to. 
And one of the speakers, Samach Sabawi, um, who's a wonderful Palestinian writer and playwright based in Melbourne, um, she talked about how, you know, because BDS is, is so accepted mm-hmm. amongst Palestinians and supported and is just normative for Palestinians, mm-hmm. to suggest not doing it is a form of colonialism, mm. suggests that it's a bag tactic, that they don't know what they're doing. Mm. You know, it's a form of colonial thinking to say that we might know better than them mm. what would work. Yeah. Um, so I think it's also, you know, it's a good reminder to follow what colonised peoples call for. Yeah. Right? That yeah. those of us... And not speak for them, but yeah. Yeah, stand with them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And just even about Eurovision, as you were mm. talking about it, I just thought about how, you know, people weren't allowed to you know, watch this this show yeah, and how it's supposed to be music and about spreading mm-hmm. love and how it's not political. But, you know, everything is political. Exactly. Right? And it's so easy to not classify something as political when you're not the one affected by it. And like how, um, sorry to jump in, <laughs> um, that Kate Milhacki, mm. um, I was watching the Australian story with her and uh, she was saying that uh, she thought a lot about the criticisms um, prior to participating, but she felt like music... Uh, crosses borders and she had this kind of response like that and it yeah. was interesting to see her rationale and how she defended being there. Right? And that's such a common thing to be like, oh I thought about it as though the mere thinking about it is the work. Yeah. Um, firstly and then to be like, I know better than them. I, you know, because I say that music crosses boundaries. It's like music doesn't cross boundaries. Like, who, who do you think you are? Mm. Yeah. You're not that I mean, special. You know, the, the <laughs> irony of coming from a country that itself hasn't grappled with its own past and mm. to present music as representative of this country, where we don't even know what is representative yeah. of this country, to go to another displaced, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was just all too much. And I did not watch Eurovision yeah. as well. <laughs> Yeah, that's a simple action. That, yeah. That's what people were doing on social media. Boycotting Eurovision mm-hmm. is simple. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it was... And it was interesting to me to see the number of people who either watched it, but then also went on social media to talk about it mm. and tweeted about it. And it's like, even if you really have to watch it for whatever reason, you know, do you really have to publicly say you're watching it? Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> why, why is your enjoyment of a couple of hours of music mm. more important than, than being in solidarity um, with Palestinians. And I think, yeah, I, I, solidarity work is can be hard and, and it can put you out. And I think this was really, uh, uh, you know, I love Eurovision, mm. but it was still, it's a zero cost mm-hmm. thing to not watch Eurovision one For year. For one year. One year, yeah. you know, and... Oh, and, you know, if Russia was participating yeah. than with the horrible things that they're, yeah, they're yeah. doing, you know, yeah. to people there. Yeah, that's important to me. I won't watch it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right? And I think often another argument used to um, sort of delegitimize BDS is sometimes people say, well, yeah, what about these other countries that mm. do these terrible things and should we boycott them? And partly it's, yes, we all do yeah, make our can. individual yeah. decisions. Like, yes, yeah. let's have more boycotts. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's the good answer. Mm. Um but, yeah, so it's partly that. Like, mm. yes, absolutely, boycott the things you want to boycott. Most of us will support you in that. Mm. But secondly, yeah, it, it erases that this is a call from Palestinians. Yeah. And that most other of these, like, capital B bad countries mm. don't have internal calls yeah. um, by oppressed peoples for boycott. Absolutely. Palestine does. and. Absolutely. That's a really important difference that shouldn't be erased. I think. Yeah, so I think that's a term that listeners can read up on and, 
and find out more yeah. about BDS boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll post some links on Facebook about it. Also, possibly the audio that you were talking about. Yeah, yeah, I'll send yeah. that through. Perfect. Yep. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jody. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Santa Concha, what the hell is a completo anyway? It's a Chilean hot dog, mate. What happens when lots of people get together and eat completos? It becomes a completada bailable. If you really want to experience a completada bailable and support our 3CR community, come to our fundraiser, Saturday 8 of June at Moreland City Band Room, 16 Cross Street, East Brunswick, at 6 p.m. Come and check your culo with DJ Twin and DJ Otorongo and live music by Abe Danovitz, Little Chili, and their mates. Limpiese la boquita que le quedó paltita. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. The end of the show today, unfortunately, you just heard a track from Hextet. It's called Loops. Their new album is out. You can listen to it. It's um, awesome. Just like to thank our guests today. We had Chris with the headlines. We had Aaron from the Tamil Refugee Council. And we had Dr. Jordana Silverstein talking about anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism and the difference between the two. Up next is Accent of Women. Ayan Shoa will be um, in conversations with um, uh, some, yeah, some conversations from the siblings of the YAM workshops about healing, self-compassion and healthy egos. Catch you next week.